0: There is a difference between good and scary movies and movies that systematically demean half the human race. There is a difference between movies which are violent but entertaining and movies that are gruesome and despicable. There is a difference between a horror movie and a freak show. And a good example of that is the fact that both of us gave favorable reviews to a very scary 1978 horror film named Halloween. Now, there must be people asking, how could we praise a movie like that and now say these other movies are so terrible? Well, here's a scene from Halloween. It's got the same basic situation as all the Women in Danger movies have. There's a woman alone in a big house. She's being chased by a killer. But let's look at it first
1: and then talk about some of the differences.
0: Welcome to Episode 3 of Errors of Continuity, presented by the SLS Cast. Errors of Continuity is a topic-driven podcast geared toward the movie industry and featuring in-depth discussion on various topics ranging from filmmakers to the movies they make. On episodes 3 through 5, we will be discussing the Halloween movie series. Today's episode will be about the first four flicks in the Halloween franchise, John Carpenter's original Halloween from 1978, Halloween 2 from 1981, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, from 1982, and Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, which was released in 1988. Now that we've got that out of the way, welcome cinephiles, and we hope you enjoy the show.
2: For heirs of continuity hosts, is me, Tim, from the SLS cast. I, of course, am Tim. But joining the conversation today, from Space City, Texas, and the unauthorized Cinnamon Podcast, which you can find over at www.mockingbirdnetwork.com is a fellow cinephile and horror connoisseur, Harry J. Perales. How are you doing, Harry?
1: I'm doing fine. How are you doing, Tim?
2: Good, thank you well it's it's been a while since you and I had a conversation, yeah, uh, quite possibly nearing the ten year mark uh
1: no, I think it was uh i think we had a college class together e of h
2: So this is when we need our own little flashback to go back and look at how ridiculous, I know me, how ridiculous I looked wearing my probably oversized jeans, ill-fitted dress shirts. But anyways, we're not talking about that. We, of course, are talking about the Halloween franchise, which started off with 1978's Halloween directed and written and produced and scored by John Carpenter and edited by John Carpenter. Halloween, the franchise, grossed $627.6 million worldwide. And that is, of course, adjusted for inflation. Not taking inflation into consideration, it did gross $308.5 million in the U.S. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't $627.6 million worldwide, but that is $627.6 million U.S. alone, which is pretty crazy. This, of course, makes the series the ninth Highest Grossing Horror Franchise, Following the Conjuring, Scream, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Paranormal Activity, Jaws, Saw, and Alien. I don't know about you, but every time I see Jaws popping up in a list of horror movies, especially when you look at Jaws the franchise, I kind of laugh a little bit because after the first Jaws, it doesn't really feel like a B-grade horror movie.
1: Yeah, no, it's funny because, you know, I guess the last Jaws movie came out when I was like three years old and I'm 32 now. Back then in the 80s and late 70s, there was a whole tradition of all of these ridiculous Jaws sequels where they're chasing down the Brodies for some reason. But uh, yeah, now we we haven't had that in almost three decades. Well, luckily, I
2: don't think they're going to bring back Jaws anytime soon, hopefully. So back to Halloween, what is... Or what was your first introduction to the Halloween franchise? Were you a kid? Were you older?
1: It's really weird because you know now I'm you know I'm a big fan of the Halloween or at least the first Halloween and you know to some degree the rest of the movies. But uh, I was I was obsessed with like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies when I was really really young. Like I was about like four and five watching or five years old watching those movies obsessively. And uh, then as I got older, I really got into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So the Halloween series wasn't my preferred like you know, horror franchise for a long time. And uh, I think actually the first one I saw the whole way through was Halloween H20 when I was, I guess I was about 13 when that came out. But I'd definitely seen like John Carpenter movies before then and was a fan of like The Fang and Escape from New York.
2: That's pretty much how I was too. Really the only Halloween movie that I remember watching as a kid on TNT or TBS around Halloween time when they would do the marathons, I always just so happened to only catch Halloween Mm 2. It could have been worse. It could have been Halloween 5 or Halloween 6, but it freaked me out as a kid. Just the idea of it taking place. We'll talk about it more later on, but the idea of it taking place inside of this partly inside of this like hospital, this very, very 1970s, early 1980s hospital. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about when I say like an eerie 80s hospital, think of the movie Grindhouse. If you've seen Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse, that whole hospital scene to me was just like the perfect. That is the perfect 80s creepy ass dingy fucking hospital
1: and a hospital that really only has one other patient and just a bunch of babies
2: yeah I, you know I think the <laughs> real terror in Haddonfield Illinois isn't this killer mm-hmm. we are all the adults
1: yeah <laughs> yeah they're all
2: and then you kind of wonder about the timing like by the time the actions of Halloween 2 happens like wh- exactly what time of the night is it because little kids are still up and in <laughs> costumes but yet did they stop trick or treating at six? You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just I just assume there's a big like uh, basically it's the parents from the ice storm are having their own movie and Halloween's <laughs> happening.
2: It's just a bunch of Kevin Kleins running around. <laughs> the only reason why I brought that up is because we were talking about watching these movies back to back. Once I started watching the fourth movie, which is when I started taking a lot of notes, is when I realized. This is a damn fine series. It's definitely a lot more fun to watch than the Friday the 13th movies. But I guess to begin our in-depth, collegiate discussion of the Halloween franchise, allow me to give you a brief history of horror. And it's going to be so brief that I hope it makes sense. The movie Halloween landed in the middle of the new wave of Hollywood movies, commonly referred to as New Hollywood, which began in the mid-60s and lasted through kind of the early 80s, depending on how you look at it. Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and Easy Rider were among the first films under the helm of New Hollywood filmmakers. The 1970s was also considered as the decade of the movie Bratz, The movie brats were the young and first generation of filmmakers to have grown up with television and cinema pop culture, like your Spielbergs and Lucases and Scorseses. Spielberg, along with John Carpenter and Wes Craven, grew up watching the original Universal horror classics. So they were familiar with horror history and how to create a successful monster movie. Or... A movie monster, for that matter. They knew the do's and the don'ts as to what makes these characters most memorable. They knew to target the fears and horrors of the current rising generation. In the early years, audiences ate up. The early monster flicks, like in the 1930s and 40s and early 50s, when you did see like the classic monster movies like your Frankensteins and Draculas and Wolfmans and Mummies... In the nineteen fifties, a lot of audiences were into aliens, like the thing from Another World from 1951 and War of the Worlds from 1953. The theater gimmick, such as 3D, was very popular. 3D was utilized in a great way with House of Wax in 1953, where they did that obligatory 3D scene with the guy outside with the yo-yo and throwing the yo-yo into the audience, like and looking right directly into the camera as he's throwing this yo-yo into the audience.
3: Careful, sir, keep your head down or I'll tap you on the chin. Look out, Dick! Wow, that's a becoming hat you're wearing, madam. I wonder if I can clip a flower off it. Hold steady now, don't move your head, or you'll lose the powder off your nose. Well, there's someone with a bag of popcorn. Close your mouth, it's the bag I'm aiming at. Not your tonsils, here she comes. Well, look at that, it's in the bag.
2: The seat buzzers. Those were another semi-popular gimmick that came about when technology was advanced enough to where they could put these little seat buzzers in various screenings of the film The Tingler, which came out in 1959.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream, scream for your lives. The Tingler is loose in this theater, and if you don't scream, it may you. Scream, scream. Keep screaming! Scream for your lives! It's here! It's over here! Help! Help! Look out, it's under the seat! Ladies and gentlemen, the the tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of
2: the movie. But by that time, audiences had grown up. They were done with these gimmicky movies. They wanted something with more meat and more gristle, which is why we got the new wave of Hollywood films. You also had the gothic horror period films, which were very popular, like the Hammer films. But when Psycho came out in 1960, when it entered the scene... Nobody quite saw a popular film so brazen and unfamiliar. It was a movie where the actress with top billing dies midway through, and possibly the most sympathetic character in the entire movie turned out to be the one person that the audience should fear the most.
3: They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even gonna swat that fly. I hope they are watching they'll see they'll see, and they'll know, and they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly
2: with psycho. all bets were off anything could happen, and that's what the audiences ate up and it's kind of funny because actually psycho and Halloween i mean there there's a lot between the two films at parallel, for example, Jamie Lee Curtis, her mother is Janet Lee and Janet Lee solidified herself as pretty much modern horror's first Scream Queen in Psycho. And as with Halloween redefining the horror genre by creating a different kind of horror flick, or horror genre, reality horror, Psycho brought the horror genre into the modern era. We also saw Roger Corman becoming very popular in the 60s and late 50s. He's still making movies now, but not as many.
4: say he he told me to to beware of what i don't know i suggest we would better leave you huh yes. don't forget my hair
2: at the start of the vietnam war horror movies just couldn't compete with the horrors of real life night of the living dead from 1968 was made because Romero was so pissed off that the peace and love revolution didn't work. Horror films began to take on social commentary at this time due to all the anger and disappointment going around. Romero didn't just want to end Night of the Living Dead with killing off all the zombies, which is why the last surviving character in Night of the Living Dead, a black man, is senselessly shot by the law. All
3: right, man, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire.
2: You know, there's your social commentary right there. And there were several other protest films in the late 60s on into the 70s that came out and were pretty popular. In the 70s, you also saw the rise of savage cinema, which savage cinema, of course, is gratuitous violence done in a meaningful way. A lot of people consider Last House on the Left as the epitomal savage cinema flick.
4: To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie, only a movie. Only take as much as you can.
0: Only the
4: Texas
2: Chainsaw Massacre kicked off the slasher format in 1974, soon followed by Halloween, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. And that is, in a nutshell, history a brief history of the horror genre itself. When I say that Halloween redefined horror cinema with reality horror and not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, in a way, I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is still very much kind of fantasyful, but there's just something about Halloween where, you know, the babysitter in a rural town, in a suburb, could get killed by a masked man, you know, just by using a knife. It's absolutely frightening. At least at the time, it was absolutely frightening. I don't know. I don't know. Am I, am I missing anything in particular, Harry, that you would like to add? Or is there anything else that directly influenced? John Carpenter.
1: Um, I think there's a, at least in the North American movies, there's a there's a big omission that's really important to Halloween, and that's a Bob Clark's Black Christmas.
4: Hello. Oh, oh, oh. Hello. Oh, Look,
3: who is this? <sighs> Please stop. Oh God. <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> Filthy
4: Billy! I know you're doing this, Billy! You're absolutely this, Billy! Who are you? For God's sake, what are you doing? I know what you're doing, Billy! Filthy Billy! 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 Stop this!
1: It's actually funny because uh, John Carpenter, uh, according to Bob Clark, John Carpenter wanted Bob Clark to direct a script of his. And um, they were talking and John Carpenter was a huge fan of Black Christmas. And that was another that was kind of another early kind of example of the killer stalking a group of young girls in a sorority. And, uh, you know, John Carpenter was like, you know, why don't you make a sequel? And Bob Clark said, you know, I don't really want to do a bunch of horror movies, but if I did, it would, according to Bob Clark, he says that if I did, you know, the guy goes to the institution at the end when he gets out, and he gets out around Halloween, and he goes back to the sorority. And uh, But Bob Clark doesn't claim that John Carpenter ripped him off. People were kind of grabbing ideas and influence wherever they could, also the genesis of Halloween as a project came from Arameni uh, Blondes, who went to John Carpenter after he'd made a on Precinct 13 and said, I want to make a movie about a killer who kills babysitters. And John Carpenter kind of saw this as an opportunity to make this very efficient horror movie. And uh, I also think that uh, another big influence that should be noted are the influence of the Italian horror movies. And especially in the kind of point of view, black love serial killer, who were greatly influenced by Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho. I I think, you know, there's movies like Wait Until Dark and stuff like that in America, but a kind of a bigger influence uh, of Hitchcock would be uh, the adaptations of these kind of Giallo movies from Italy. And uh, also, you know, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby is another kind of another shift from the kind of the old, poor into the kind of the new, more honest and realistic kind of horror.
3: Yeah, and
2: there was also an uptick in quality of filmmaking as well, come, you know, Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. I'm glad you mentioned Italian horror because I know Suspiria had great influence on Halloween, especially to uh, the director of photography, Dean Cundey, just like the use of colors Mm -hmm. and the use of using blue Not that, Suspiria used a bunch of blue, but the idea of accentuating a scene with a color to give that itself its own character and its own like little atmosphere. Mm -hmm. You can see where the influence came from, but it's not directly ripping anybody off. No. I mean, we all know scripts, good storytelling, and in most movies steal ideas i mean they they take ideas from other people and whatnot i mean it's very much like how
1: lucas and star wars like buck rogers and uh uh, kurosawa as well
2: but then he took that and then created something else out of it that lends itself to that basic story and it works and you see that with john carpenter with most of the movies he makes even with the thing he wanted to remake his i know i'm jumping ahead Quite a bit, but like he wanted to make a movie, ba- or he wanted to remake a movie that he loved growing up. When he was a kid, he went and saw The Thing and he, he wanted to create movies that made the same impact that The Thing made on him. Where you sit down and you're watching a movie and you're swept up in it and you're worried for the people that you're watching, you're worried for their lives, you know, you don't want to see these people get killed. And when they come face to face with a thing, it's absolutely terrifying. And then when the house lights comes up, you're out of that world and bam, you can go back to, you know, your own world. But yet that thought of that movie and the horror of possibly, I'm, I could maybe, maybe run into this character, run into that evil monster in the dark.
4: Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions. That not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from
2: the other. That idea of it still lingering, he just... It was just very appealing and very influential. Even with this music, I didn't see Dark Star until much later on. Dark Star, of course, is the movie that he made... Well, did he drop out of... Because he went to... His father was a musical professor, like a music coach, music professor at a Kentucky college or something like that. And his father wanted John Carpenter to go into, to become like a musician or something like that. So he ended up dropping out because he wanted to be in the movie business, got into USC, met all these guys, made a couple popular, well-known short films. One of them he ended up winning a Academy Award for, but he ended up doing all the music for those movies. What do you know about like his inspiration for scoring? Because it's always very simple.
1: Uh, every interview that I've seen with him, he always reiterates the same thing, and it's probably just him being like humble, but he's like, I'm fast and I'm cheap.
4: Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Sure thing.
1: There's that song in Dark Star Benson, Arizona, that he co-wrote. And, of course, he did the score to Assault on Precinct 13. He wanted this kind of, especially with his like electronic scores, he wanted this big sound. And an easy way to get that was through synthesizers. And so that kind of starts it of like, oh, well, I'm just going to take this over. Because he'd been in bands. Music was a big part of his life. But, uh, you know, movies were just a bigger part. And it was kind of a means to an end to make it his kind of complete vision for what the movie should be.
2: So what else can you tell us that can lead us into talking about John Carpenter's Halloween? Because we have to call it John Carpenter's Halloween. Because within the contract, he wanted to make (laughs) sure his name was above the title.
1: (laughs) Right. And that was uh, definitely an influence from Howard Hawks and uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And he hadn't seen many filmmakers doing that at that time. And he was... He was coming up around the same time as like, you know, he went to USC like George Lucas did, but he wasn't in that kind of group of movie brats. He always said he felt more comfortable. He would have been more comfortable in the old mode of Hollywood filmmaking of, you know, you're just a director that, you know, has a contract with the studio and you make like however many movies a year. And it's just, you know, no fuss. And, you know, he, he really admired Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks is probably his biggest influence that keeps coming back again. And especially if you look at um, Assault on Precinct 13, which is like a gritty urban Rio Bravo. There's also uh, the character of uh, Sheriff Lee Brackett and uh, Halloween, who is directly named after the queen of the space opera and also wrote Rio Bravo and a lot of other Howard Hawks movies.
2: He also got like his editing style from Howard Hawks mm-hmm. in the John Wayne movies also, because there's a couple yeah. really cool shots or really cool edits in Assault on Precinct 13 where... They do the whole, like, gun throwing, where somebody's off to the side, they throw the shotgun, and the person grabs it, cocks it, turns around, and shoots somebody in the face or, you know, wherever. (laughs) Yeah. Which, that was also another thing.
1: Or points a gun at a girl in an ice cream truck and shoots her through her ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: classy stuff like that. You know, things that John Wayne stood by. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you say, I mean, I would think that Assault in Precinct 13 is probably his most... If you're going to call it an exploitation film, that that's his exploitation film.
1: Yeah, I, I would probably say that as well.
2: I mean, sure as shit, more violent than Halloween.
1: And I think that was more of a kind of, you know, with scenes like that, that's more of him kind of throwing his hat into the ring and being like, no, I'm a, you know, i made dark star, which is this kind of goofy, like, sci-fi movie. I was like, no, this is the kind of action movie I want to make. So how
2: did he get the job, though, after doing Assault in Precinct 13? It got okay reviews but it wasn't like a huge box office success
1: yeah i think it was uh he met the producer airwandy blondes i think at a film festival where it kind of been well received and uh he just agreed or he you know wanted to make a movie with him and that's where he pitched the idea of you know babysitter murderers a murderer who kills babysitters
2: which I'm glad they decided to do Halloween. It's yeah. always fun when when you watch we were talking uh, during the pre-show about John Carpenter and watching like when he, whenever he does like interviews and whatnot on, you know, the DVD or Blu-ray special features. And I just thought it was kind of interesting how at the time they thought of having the movie set around Halloween. And I think it was John Carpenter who said All right, so why don't we just call the movie Halloween? We can't, but we can't do that because there is a movie. Like, I mean, certainly somebody created a movie and they called it Halloween. There's no way we can get the rights to calling this Halloween. So he did like all this research and there were no other films at that time called Halloween. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't really think there was another movie named after a holiday like that
1: well i mean black christmas is probably the closest like a lot of things in the movie it's kind of like a no-brainer that's like why didn't anybody think of this before or why didn't anybody you know realize that this would be so powerful until you do it sure and it worked the The one one, the only the classic classic halloween
4: halloween night a small american town 15 years ago. Michael. Halloween.
3: I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil.
4: When was the last time you were scared out of your wits by a movie? Halloween, the motion picture about the most terrifying night of the year. Halloween, the night three teenage girls discover the real trick is to stay alive.
0: Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Just talk. sure. sure. The only reason she babysits is to
2: have... Halloween, so now that we're into Halloween, the first film in the franchise, it came out on october twenty fifth nineteen seventy eight on a budget of three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. It's funny because originally the budget was three hundred thousand dollars. apparently the twenty five thousand went to the stage presence uh, or the screen presence of Donald Pleasants. On a budget of $325,000, its U.S. box office intake was $47 million. Worldwide box office intake was $70 million. But if you were going to, you know, with 2017 inflation and whatnot, it comes out to $262.8 million worldwide, which is flipping amazing for a movie made on a budget of
1: $325,000.
2: In fact, it was so amazing that for an entire decade, it was the most successful independent film of all time.
1: Until, I think, uh, The Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah, Secret of the Ooze, right? Oh, no, no, just the first one. Oh, did the first I think the first one uh, was, yeah, the first one was independent.
2: No shit. How much did that make? Yeah. How much did it cost?
1: Um, I think the, the ratio of, like, a... I don't know maybe it was profitability but I, I remember seeing some statistic where like Ninja Turtles ended up being like this crazily profitable independent movie.
2: That is one title I never saw in any of our history cinema books at U of H. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also a little bit of uh, trivia Sally Mankey the Tarantino's editor until she passed away was one of the editors on that movie. Ninja Turtles? Yeah. Wow, so she went from Ninja (laughs)
2: Turtles to, you know, a handful of years later to working with Tarantino. That's that's a nice little jump. Yeah. (laughs) The movie, of course, is based in Haddonfield, Illinois. They didn't shoot there. Instead, they shot in Pasadena, California. Yes, Pasadena, California doesn't quite look like (laughs) Illinois at all. They had to create Fall by reusing the same fall looking leaves i don't know if they were real leaves or if they were fake leaves or not but they had to keep using the same leaves over and over again and i also think the appeal of this movie especially and maybe i'm jumping around a little too much here it felt like there was great chemistry in in a nice camaraderie between everybody in the movie like every once in a while you see a movie where all the pieces just fit together perfectly And a lot of that, I think, is attributed to, you know, the actors working well together and then the actors working well with the director, who in that case, everybody is on the same page. But before I go off on any other tangent, what is the synopsis of Halloween? Since this is one of your two favorite Halloween flicks.
1: Well, it opens up and we see this little boy who, uh, well, we don't, we don't know he's a little boy. I jumped ahead. Uh we get this long POV shot following this couple that's making out in this house and they go upstairs and the light goes off. And then we see the point of view go into the house and it eventually picks up a knife and a mask and goes up and murders the young girl. And then it co- and then the point of view comes back down and greets uh, parents who know it by name and call him Michael. And then we cut back and we see it's a young boy who just murdered his sister. Cut to several years later, and he's being transferred out of his mental facility. The people who are supposed to transfer him, he steals their car, and he drives back to Haddonfield, Illinois, to where we meet a group of young girls who are babysitters, and it's a Halloween night, and uh, as they're making plans, the shape Michael Myers begins stalking them, and eventually claims several of them as his victims.
0: What time tonight? I don't know yet. I have to get out of taking my little brother trickery. Treat. your treats for Bob. Funny. See ya. Bye. Bye. <sighs> oh okay, look. Look where? Behind the bush. I don't see anything. Can you by so fast, that when you yelled at? Oh, subtle, look. isn't he? Laurie, dear, he wants to talk to you, he wants to take you out tonight. Never go out. You must have a small fortune stash from babysitting so much. You guys think I'm too smart. I don't. I think you're wacko. Now you're seeing men behind bushes.
2: Definitely, an important thing to note is that Deborah Hill also had a pretty big hand in absolutely creating a lot of things we like about uh, this movie. Because I believe she did the first draft of the script, and in that draft, mm-hmm. she's the one that wrote all the dialogue for the women you watch the movie now and i watched it with my significant other and i just man she made every time there was a quip made by one of those girls like the cheerleader she would laugh because it was just too goofy you know the whole totally thing saying totally all the time totally mm-hmm. this oh totally 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 but like you know at the time I, you know, i'm sure that's how they spoke but it was deborah hill she was the one that wrote that dialogue and she was the one that was able to make that connection with the audience via the dialogue.
1: Absolutely. In general, like her collaborations with John Carpenter, that's probably his strongest period is when he's working with her. Because you can kind of see like, you know, even though I I love pretty much his whole output throughout the 80s, you can see kind of a decline as soon as she stops being his uh, producer, co-writer and co-producer. And lover. Yeah.
2: So how about the cast of characters?
1: Who do we got here? Jamie Lee Curtis, the daughter of uh, Janet Lee, as uh, Lori Strode. Our heroine. Mm-hmm.
2: We also have Donald Pleasance, the more seasoned thespian. Actually, probably, I think maybe the only seasoned thespian in the movie, other than some of the other bit parts. Uh, I've seen him before. Mm-hmm. Because this movie was such like a low budget film. And also, uh, Yablon and, oh shit, the backer
1: Mustafa Akkad.
2: Yeah, it's kind of amazing how he's the one that put up the money, you know, the $300,000 or $325,000 grand. And yet he told John Carpenter, you have free reign to do whatever you want. And a couple of the demands that John Carpenter made was that he wanted his name above the title, and then he also wanted to shoot the movie in Panavision. This was, of course, an exploitation film. But this was the first exploitation film that was made I mean, it wasn't a huge budget at all, but technically there was not really an exploitation film made like this, where you had great cinematography done by Dean Cundey. You had, I think it's safe to say, revolutionary camera movements. It's Steadicam, but at the time it was Panaglide, which was used in place of dolly shots and allowed for very difficult shots, like the opening continuous shot that Harry was talking about. Which I'm still kind of impressed by it because you're expecting the movie to cut. Right, yeah. And we've seen this a lot before over the past seven, eight years. We've been seeing more continuous shots over and over again. But this was before there was even CGI to where if there were any imperfections, they could get rid of those imperfections with a computer. Here, the opening scene is the last scene that they shot. And so for most of the movie... The Michael Myers house is this dilapidated house. Before the last day of shooting, they had to go through and repaint the outside of <laughs> the house. It looks pretty nice and new. But the production designer, who was like Tommy Lee Wallace, who was also... Was he also the editor?
1: No, Tommy Lee Wallace was a co-editor.
2: Tommy Lee Wallace was co-editor and production designer. So what he did is that instead of remodeling the interior of the home he made sure to know exactly what the camera, what the shot was going to be, what the camera was going to look at, what the focus was on, so that within that shot, that's the only part of the house that he fixed up. So where you see like beautiful wallpaper two feet away or two inches away from that really nice wallpaper, it's just like torn up wall, a lot of stains and nastiness. There was a lot of really neat tricks on top of this filmmaking technology that really has never been explored in such way before
1: yeah and it's really funny i was thinking of how imitated that opening scene how imitating that opening shot is and uh, even just a couple years later like you know brian de palma who's known as like one of the biggest kind of purveyors of the long take thing was like well i have to do this for blowout but i'm gonna pretend like we're making just some crappy movie but uh, his single take is so sophisticated. It's like, he felt like he had to like outdo that.
2: Did John Carpenter really do any other crazy single take shots? It wasn't Intricate. a single take,
1: but he does the, And that's the thing about Carpenter. He's not a flashy filmmaker. He's a very classical filmmaker. He just has a really good eye. And you can tell when it's a John Carpenter shot. I think the only thing that comes to mind is the fight and they live that he just, you know, it's not that he doesn't cut from it. There are several cuts, but he just lets the fight go on.
2: And that's a freaking awesome fight too could you imagine roddy piper in this movie what if roddy piper and kurt russell were actually in the thing or not in the thing in uh in halloween roddy piper as michael myers
1: i was like i'm more of a roddy piper as sam loomis just being really really <laughs> hard to be with and just a total downer but also super intense.
2: I, I do want to talk about Donald Pleasance. But uh, since we were just kind of talking about the cinematography, I do want to note that Dean Cundy he went on to receive a, uh, an Oscar nomination, Academy Award nomination for best cinematography for uh, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He did the cinematography for Halloween Two and Halloween Three, and I, I think that was it. I don't know if he came back for any of the others. But he's had a pretty good, a pretty, pretty good career, and he still does stuff now. Mm-hmm. One of the really cool things that he did. In this movie. Was the lighting. The lighting effects are really neat. And it's nothing really too flashy. It's like a great movie score you know. Where normally the best movie scores. Are the scores you don't really notice. When it comes to lighting. Some of the best lighting. Is lighting you don't really notice. And what I mean by that. Outside when. Like either the little boy. Or when Lori is looking outside the window. And she's looking at the house across the street. There's like this blue light that hits the house dead on to where you can see the street and everything is kind of in black, you know, it's dark, but you see that blue light and there's just something about it. It's drawing your focus to what that blue light is shining on, but it's not taking away from the overall shot, nor is it taking away from the overall mood or the atmosphere itself. In fact, it, in in some way, at least when I watch it, it clicks in my head that like, Oh wait, that could be the moonlight hitting the house where It's kind of obvious, you know, I mean, there's no way in hell the moonlight can be, A, that blue and that absolutely perfect to light that house in that particular way. Right. But he also utilizes the blue light in revealing Michael Myers within the house. For example, the great hallway scene, which is considered one of the most famous scenes in the movie. He uses that blue light next to Michael Myers's mask to slowly reveal his face from within the shadows, when he's—I think he's behind Laurie in that scene—and we see that shot repeated all the time in horror movies nowadays. But it's just crazy. It's absolutely fascinating. Rewatching this movie and thinking at that time nobody was expecting it. So that's why I say I think Dean Cundey is a very—I don't want to throw around "revolutionary" too much—and that's probably a little too grandiose of a title to give him. But that's like another aspect that adds a lot of life to this film that I think is just really cool. I mean, you have John Carpenter, you have a great cinematographer, and then you have the editing. That just works perfectly. And also helped that John Carpenter edited pretty much the entire movie while he was shooting it. But going back to the characters, you brought up Dr. Loomis.
3: I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven, trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. That- if you do that, they'll see him in every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open.
2: What did you think about Donald <laughs> Pleasance as Dr. Loomis? Because he is definitely, again, the, the obvious seasoned thespian mm-hmm. in this film.
1: Well, John Carpenter wanted to get somebody like, um, he, he wanted to have like an established kind of, you know, actor. He, he you know, and he was definitely as kind of a, like a movie brat himself. He was drawing from, you know, influences from previous movies. And he wanted like Christopher Lee or like Peter Cushing but uh he both of them turned him down, and uh Donald Pleasance, you know, was also like a veteran actor, and he'd been in a couple of those kind of horror movies, and you know in a james Bond movie but um Donald Pleasance is terrific in it. The only issue is like how pleasant how uh likable Loomis is in general, which he doesn't need to be rewatching it and knowing you you have these two parallel like male characters who are driven by one single thing in this movie and michael myers is driven just to kill and sam loomis is driven just to stop michael myers and anytime anybody brings up anything else he turns it around in like a bummery way to remind everybody that they need to kill michael myers if you think about it
2: he could possibly be just as bad as michael myers dr loomis But just not as successful as Michael Myers when it comes to killing people. Right. So how about the other ladies?
4: Hi. Hurry up, hurry up.
0: Shut the door, shut the door. Some guy is following me. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I think it's that guy that passed us in the street in that station wagon. I couldn't see him very well, but I think it's Steve Todd. His brother has a station wagon.
4: No, he was parked outside the school today. Right outside the window, he was staring at me.
0: Steve Todd was staring at you?
4: Somebody was.
0: A while ago, he was in my backyard. Well, or maybe he just wants a date. Oh, shut up! Well, someone could want a date.
1: PJ Souls, who uh, uh, movie nerds know, you know, not just from Halloween, but from also Carrie and uh, Rock and Roll High School and Stripes and a bunch of other movies. It's kind of, you know, the, the biggest kind of party girl of that group of um, Lori and uh, Annie, played by Nancy Loomis. And uh, I'm blanking on PJ Souls because I just always think of her as just PJ Souls. I can't remember what her name is in the movie. Is it Rachel?
2: Or is that another Halloween movie?
1: No, I think it's Linda. Is it Linda?
2: I think so. That sounds super familiar because I'm picturing the guy that she sleep, the boyfriend or whatever she sleeps with, saying Linda in a really strange way.
1: I'm just going to call her PJ Souls, though. Slash topless girl. Yeah.
4: See anything you like?
1: <laughs> but I really, yeah, I love the kind of chemistry between those three. It can be viewed, especially if you look at something like Black Christmas, and I I, I don't keep meaning to be one of those, like, you know, Black Christmas did it first things, but when you watch the kind of uh, relationships between the girls and Black Christmas, I feel like those kind of hold up better. And it seemed more authentic, but I still just really like the kind of chemistry between the leads and, uh, or the three babysitters in uh, Halloween. See, I kind of wonder if it's not really
2: the interaction between the three girls in Halloween that really sucks the audience in, but it's the setting and how it's shot. Because you have a lot of these Panaglide shots, the Steadicam shots, where they're just walking around a suburban neighborhood, a suburban Pasadena, Illinois neighborhood, and just talking about boys, talking about this dance that two of them aren't going to make it to. They're just kind of carrying on talking about these things. But at the same time, it's Halloween. It's going to be nighttime soon. You know, there's little kids getting ready to trick or treat. And when I watch it, I remember that feeling, you know, being even when I was in high school or being a kid, getting ready, like there there was that part of the time that was just, you know, the anticipation was building up because I just wanted to get on my costume and, you know, I wanted it to be dark outside so I can go out and start trick-or-treating and have a good time, mm-hmm. you know. So I think a lot of that has to do right. with it also, which makes for that feeling and, and it brings out more of that terror of what if there was that masked man on that particular night, you know, when you feel very vulnerable in a way that could come out and stab you in the in the gut.
1: And I think I think it also nails that kind of feeling that we had kind of after like just the, the years immediately after we were too old to go trick or treating. It's like, all right, I'm going to go do some shit with my friends cuz everybody else is busy. Yeah,
2: I'm kind of surprised they really didn't yeah. bring out any like weed in this movie. Do they do they do they smoke weed?
1: I, yeah, I think there's that scene with uh, Annie and uh Lori when they're driving up and they run into Annie's dad
2: that's right yeah she has that whole paranoid thing
0: still spooked i wasn't spooked Lies. i wasn't i saw somebody standing in mr riddle's backyard probably mr riddle he's watching me. mr riddle was watching you Lori. mr riddle is 87 he can still watch It's probably all he can do what's the pumpkin for i brought it for tommy i figured carving a jack-o-lantern would keep him occupied i always said you'd make a fabulous girl scout thanks for that matter, I might as well be a Girl Scout myself tonight. I plan on making popcorn and watching Dr. Dementia. Six straight hours of horror movies. Little Lindsay Wallace won't know what hit her.
2: <laughs> I forgot that Don't Fear the Reaper is playing on the radio when they're driving around. But they never make it that prominent either. It's just kind of odd. They really don't play it up at all. Where I'm like, you watch horror movies now where, I mean, now nostalgia is all the rage So you watch a lot of these horror movies and they take older songs to make it more, I guess, nostalgic and appealing because, oh, you know, my dad used to listen to that and it fits wonderfully in this Guardians of the Galaxy movie or Annabelle or whatever. But they never really focus on stuff like that. It's always the technique, the story, the characters, and also the tension and the pacing. That is something that doesn't really carry on to the other films. And I think you can agree with me, which is what makes this movie so damn unique.
1: Right. And the thing that I really noticed rewatching it, which I just never really paid attention to, was, um, you know, you have the opening scene of the POV shot, but then after that, we're never in, or almost never in Mike Myers' POV, which, you know, most slasher movies, you know, there's always, you know, he either jumps up at you or like, you know, it's like a POV shot. But with Michael Myers, we're all almost always caught or almost always made aware of where Michael Myers is and that we're behind him or we see him and we're never complicit with him. We're just always aware of where he is in the scene. Yeah. And
2: there's always that sense of maybe these characters can get away. Like they always have a chance depending on like if they're running away from him obviously he's just taking a stroll he's he's walking he's taking his time and then so like whenever they encounter that gate they can't quite get across or get over or get through or whatever or that window they can't quite get open that's when the editing and the pacing really comes in because they turn around and he's not there. Right. They turn back and they try to do it and it's not working. They turn back around to the door and he's still not there, but you know, they're going to turn around like that third, fourth or fifth time and he's going to be there and it's going to be frightening and frustrating because they had the time to get out, but they just couldn't. And you really don't see that much in, right. in a lot of modern day horror films. And you also don't see it that much when we get more into the Halloween franchise itself
1: and also the movie takes its time to kind of build him up as this menacing presence before he actually you know attacks his victims i mean you know we have the opening scene and um we see him escape and steal the car and we see one of his victims but we don't actually see him do anything until he's out uh, it's about 40 minutes in is when he kills the family dog and then The 53-minute mark is when he claims his first victim that we see on screen. Our human victim, not to say the dog's not a victim.
2: (laughs) Eh, Easily replaceable, that dog. (laughs) Before we move on, there is one striking shot that really, in my mind, sums up this movie. I don't know if you feel the same way or not, Harry, because I'm a very visual person. I like a movie that thought goes into the way it's shot. Right. There's that one scene where the guy, the boyfriend that's sleeping with PJ Souls, you know, he goes down go get a drink or whatever in the kitchen. It's all dark and stuff and he gets confronted by Michael Myers and Michael Myers stabs him in the gut. Or no, no, no. Picks him up by his neck. Is holding him against a wall. Stabs him and that stab gets stuck in him and also gets stuck into the into the wall. The guy is left dangling there. And there's that great right. shot of his feet, you know, that we're all tense and, you know, let's go to his feet. And then Michael Myers steps back, and it's just this really cool long shot of the guy hanging on the wall, gutted, and, or with a knife through his gut. And then Michael Myers looking up at him, because the guy by this time is higher, up higher than him. And he looks at him, cocks his head to the side, and he's admiring his victim. And it's really not until that moment when you realize this guy, it's kind of fucked up. This guy means business. <laughs> like there, there's no like feeling bad for this guy. He's out to kill and he knows it. There's something more frightening about that. Kind of like with Hannibal Lecter, where what's so frightening about Hannibal Lecter is that he knows that he is crazy. He knows that he is a killer. And that's what makes him frightening because there's no changing him. So then when Michael Myers looks up at his victim, you know, and does that.
1: You know, it it's creepy. It's creepy. I think that shot too is another one that's been like often imitated by like you know other er, other killer movies. But the thing that's really interesting about like Halloween, even though you, it's just it is a blank slate. Like he is he he he's not admiring it, being like, oh, that's a great kill. He's just looking at it as a dog would. I mean, you know, that was the inspiration for you know the actor to do that is you know just like a dog. And just doesn't understand the meaning of it and has no real motivation. The franchise goes to add a motivation to him. But in the first movie, he's just a killing machine. Like walking forward, he knows he has to go home and these people live on his street. And that's why he's killing them.
2: We definitely lose a lot of that going into, well, I guess at least midway through Halloween 2.
4: Newsweek Magazine calls it a superb exercise in the art of suspense. The most frightening flick in years. Halloween. The Chicago Sun-Times says it's so scary, I would compare it to Psycho. It's the kind of picture, says the Chicago Tribune, that forces you to sleep with the lights on. A masterpiece, says New York's New Times. Halloween. From Compass International. Rated R.
2: Before we go jump over to Halloween 2, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, not particularly. I think kind of like with Jaws. It holds up so well on its own as like a classic that you don't need the sequels even though they add this like, you know, legacy storyline to it. But, you know, it just shows how effective that the movie still is even though like there's been countless imitators. It's still like remarkably well made and just fucking terrific. Uh, of course, after
2: Halloween, Box office intake was very good. It took a little while to get there. It's definitely a, it was definitely a word of mouth film. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars and another well-known critic gave it a good review as well. Quickly, like within a week or so, Halloween went from a drive-in exploitation flick, or at least it was perceived as just a, a mere exploitation flick to a serious box office contender where It was huge. It was huge. Again, the movie grossed so much money, it became the highest-grossing indie film for a decade. Until Ninja Turtles. It took Ninja fucking Turtles (laughs) to dethrone Halloween. Of course, after Halloween, we ended up getting Prom Night with Jamie Lee Curtis. I know there are more. There are definitely other, not only just uh, slasher movies like Friday the 13th, and to a lesser degree... A nightmare on Elm Street. I'll give Wes Craven more of like that fantastical monster element. But uh, definitely Friday the thirteenth, inspired by Halloween.
1: I think what happened though is that they realized you could make a movie for very little money and uh it can make a shitload of money. So they wanted to go after exactly that formula, and so you get like, you know, Friday the thirteenth, that's you know a holiday, or not really a holiday, but you know, that's on the calendar. Uh, you get My Bloody Valentine, you get The Burning, and all these, of course, Friday the 13th, and all these other kind of killer movies. And so by the time Halloween two comes around, this was a problem with, uh, at least, that you know, the editor, Tommy Lee Wallace, who was the first choice to direct Halloween II, when he got Carpenter's script, Carpenter Deborah Hill's script, he was kind of upset that they had resorted to the things they were trying to get away from which all of these imitators had definitely leaned into.
2: Could that be like attested to Hill and Carpenter being pressured into writing a sequel?
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, Halloween was their baby, and I knew they didn't want to give it up. They were pressured into writing it and doing something different, which is why we have the origins of Michael Myers. For those of you who don't know, Halloween two came out in 1981, Years after the first Halloween, I mean, that's a good three years after. I mean, I'm kind of surprised they didn't turn one out like two years beforehand. But um, it takes place right after the events of the first movie. Of course, at the end of Halloween, Donald Pleasance shoots Michael Myers right before he's about to kill Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie. He falls out of the window, lands on the ground, presumably dead, of course. They go out and, you know, let's go check the body. Let's go look at the body. And he is gone. What happened to Michael? Oh, wait, no. Hold up. Yeah, he disappears, right?
1: Yeah, he disappears. Yeah, yeah. Even at the end of the first movie, there's shots of he goes out and looks and Michael Myers is gone. And it shows, like, empty corridors in the house. And he could, you know, nobody knows where Michael Myers is. So the beginning of Halloween two, literally, much like the Rocky series, shows the last moments of the previous movie.
3: I shot him six times. I shot him in the heart. The planet, he's not human.
4: Universal Pictures presents Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. There was nothing
3: within him, neither conscience nor reason, that wasn't even remotely human. (laughs) Some kind of a joke. I've been triggered, treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. <gasps> Janet, go tell Mr. Garrett we're having trouble with the folks.
4: There is no place to hide. He will always find you. What's this? It's a Celtic word. It means the Lord of the Dead. Help me! Halloween, too. More of the night he came home.
2: The bulk of the movie is either Dr. Loomis searching for Michael Myers. He kind of has this buddy cop thing going with one of the other girls' father, who's the the town sheriff.
4: What's going on out here?
3: Call the police. Tell the sheriff I shot him. Who? Tell him he's still on the loose. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight.
2: You don't know what death is. takes place in the hospital where Laurie is taken because she's in need of medical care and what is interesting is that by this time jamie lee curtis was already labeled as a scream queen and this was going to be her retirement from making scream queen movies yet she really doesn't come into play until an hour into the movie leading up to that hour and i I will admit that the first 20 minutes of halloween 2 and halloween 2 isn't an awful movie it's interesting. In fact, this is the one movie that I remember watching as a kid around Halloween on TNT or TBS, yeah, you know, with, with commercials and shit. And it, you know, it scared me as a kid because the idea of it taking place in a in a hospital.
1: It's definitely a, it's a really fun movie.
2: Yeah, oh, oh for sure. And it's it's a very novel idea. Like it's very novel because it just continues on to the story because there's more stuff that they could play around with. Because at that time Most of the people don't know that Michael Myers is still rampaging through the town. You know, he's on a rampage through the town. So there's still that naivety amongst the townspeople. People aren't like out with pitchforks trying to track down Michael. Unlike in Halloween 4, where miraculously everybody knows who Michael (laughs) is and are out to, you know, go and try to try to get him. You know, here people are still trying to figure it out. Dr. Loomis is try, still trying to persuade people that shit is going down. We got to do something about this and we got to go track him down. Eventually he gets all the, you know, the police behind
1: What I do like is how um, we see like the ramifications of what happened in the first movie and uh, where Annie's father discovers Annie's body and basically like checks out for the rest of the movie. And then we see people throwing stuff at the Myers house. Because it's cursed what did loomis say he was like they killed one of their own or he killed one of their own
2: so there's a very interesting dynamic and character work going on but i think i mean i I don't know if it was because of jamie lee curtis not wanting to she's not the lead i mean i at least won't wouldn't consider her as the lead of this movie i mean she's her character is definitely the focal point because that's who michael myers is after but I guess more of the of the bigger story elements take place, I guess, are on Dr. Loomis's shoulders, like things that he does. We're with him more than we are with Laurie, who, again, is in bed at a hospital until an hour into the movie. And then, of course, right. at the hospital, we're focusing on the nurse and the boyfriend and them canoodling. And, of course... They die, and they die in a way that we necessarily would not have seen in Halloween 1, but they die in the way that people die in 80s horror films. Yeah. So do you think with Halloween 2, whether if it was Carpenter, I guess Carpenter was and Hill were pressured to fall more into the 80s horror movie tropes? where these teens would die in vulgar ways while they were, like, getting ready to have sexy time.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely, uh... It's hitting all the beats that those kind of franchise killer movies have to hit.
2: I mean, the violence and the gore factor, I mean, I guess you can't really call it gore. It's, yeah, it's pretty strange. At least I thought it was pretty weird watching the whole hot tub scene where... Right. This is Michael. He knows how to work this really hot bathtub to scold people to death. The movie, of course, did well. On a budget of $2.5 million, it grossed $25.5 million at the U.S. box office. Uh, If you take into consideration inflation, that would be $68.71 million. This is directed by Rick Rosenthal. Carpenter wanted to get Tommy Lee Wallace to direct this one, but he just said,
3: nah. Uh,
1: He was actually really enthusiastic about doing it until he read the script and just wasn't into the screenplay.
2: And as mentioned before, the returning cast and crew, Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, Dean Cundey, John Carpenter, and Deborah Hill. Carpenter and Hill, again, we're not planning on a sequel. Unfortunately, with this movie, what is missed the most, in my opinion, is the suspense and the tension that the first one achieved so freaking well and executed so well, you know, and 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 like you can just i mean i I guess you can't tell because it's not so blatant because the cinematography it's it's the cinematography is still good if you were going to watch this movie back to back it looks very much the same you know so you're not dealing with a drastically different movie but there is still a different pace to this film and the immediacy you know, like this has to be done. We have to do this. We have to make these decisions or Michael Myers is gonna show up and kill us. That doesn't really come into play until when Jamie Lee Curtis really comes into play, when Lori comes into play, when she's trying to get away from the hospital. But in that to me is when the tension really comes in because I really like that whole her trying to get out. She can't really function properly. She's in the middle, you know, she's in the middle of the parking lot loomis and company show up and she's not able to muster up a scream of help until like right when they go inside the hospital and the door closes like right when you hear the door shut is when she's able to scream
3: i ought to handcuff you to the wheel but i have a feeling i'm going to need you in there can i trust you what have i got to lose Except my job. Help me. Help.
2: Help. Help me! That is still pretty effective.
1: I, I think another another issue with the movie, though, uh, in terms of suspense, it's the difference between like a carnival haunted house and an actual haunted house. It was actually uh John Car- I think it was mentioned in uh the really great Jason Zinneman book Shock Value where uh John Carpenter talks about how he was influenced by the movie The Innocence, where you would just see like on the other side of a pond a ghost looking at you. And if you watch he he had that in mind definitely when he was uh making Halloween of just you know, you see Michael Myers just staring at you from far away, whereas now you have like jump scares.
2: Yeah, and music cues. Music cues to tell you when to be afraid. Yeah. There's also something kind of neat, I don't mean to go back to the first movie, about you see Michael Myers through a young boy's eyes. He's the one that witnesses the boogeyman, as in, like, takes note of him, really. There's just something like that, that whole idea of of a child going through that and seeing
1: that. That just kind of raises the stakes uh, just a little bit more. The only point of view we have of a kid in it is when he eats the razor blade candy. And there's no need for him to be there, but just to show like, yeah, they put, you know, there's that, you know, which I kind of like how they kind of dives more into the Halloween lore itself of like, they put razor blade in candy bars and this kid actually got one.
2: In addition to writing and producing kind of, Carpenter returned as the composer However, this time around, his score is a little bit different than his original score. He used a synthesizer organ instead of a traditional piano. Somebody reviewed it as a more gothic approach to the score. Did it do anything for you? I mean, like, was it that much different? from the first movie and did it have like a different impact i guess in your viewing experience
1: it definitely didn't have as much of an impact as the first one had i still like it but it definitely sounds more synthetic and more kind of forced
2: which also adds like the commercialization of halloween itself because i mean mm-hmm. john carpenter knew how to brand himself which is what we saw with john carpenter's halloween you know him having to put his name above it right but also by this time halloween is already a brand And unfortunately, like what you already talked about, Harry, they had to live up to that reputation of of being a brand, which is why, you know, the score is used more heavily in this one. But I think probably the most important aspect of this film, story-wise, that we should probably talk about, the big reveal, the big reveal in the film's third act What is that big reveal? And what do you think about that big reveal?
1: Well, the big reveal in this movie is that we find out the reason Michael Myers is hunting Lori down is because she is actually his estranged little sister.
3: It isn't fair. They should have allowed you to examine everything. That girl, that Strode girl, that's Michael Myers' sister. She was born two years before he was committed. Two years after, his parents died and she was adopted by the Strodes. They requested that the records be sealed in order to protect the family. Jesus do not you see what he's doing here in Haddonfield. He killed one sister 15 years ago. Now he's trying to kill the other. What, what, what?
1: (laughs) Even John Carpenter himself has mentioned that he screwed it up by giving a motive to the killer, by giving a motive to Michael Myers. But yeah, like, uh, it is one of those kind of, like, those big, like, movie reveals... That I even, I'd I'd even kind of, even before I got into Halloween, I knew that they were related somehow. And so it kind of took some of the, I had to really remove myself from knowing that to watch the first Halloween a couple of times growing up.
2: Does the idea of having, of Michael Myers having a motive take away from his presence? Because now he's not a killer just out to kill people for the sake of killing people. You find out he has a reason. And I know that, I don't want to say it makes him more human, but it's a little more frightening when you don't know exactly who that person is. You know, is he the devil incarnate? Is he from the great beyond? We have an idea that he's a delusioned human being, but also he can like climb cars like a cat, like in the first movie. He could drive a car still, so, you know, and like he, he has these interesting ways of, you know, looking at death, the death that he created. Right. It, it was just a little like Star Warsy in a way. Granted, of course, I didn't never, didn't go see this movie at the movie theater when it first came out. Was that like a big shock to people?
1: I don't really know. I know that, you know, it, it comes out a year after the great reveal of The Empire Strikes Back. So I'm sure that that had to have played something into it of like, okay, well... Why, why, why do we keep putting Jamie Lee Curtis in these movies? There has to be a reason for that. If he has to keep showing up, and we have to keep having Michael Myers do it, okay, uh, she's his sister. And there's even kind of a, it's kind of like a throwaway flashback scene where you see uh, for like less than five seconds this flashback of like young Laurie talking to her mother, and she just says, "I'm not your mother," or something. It's something like that. And then we cut to a shot of uh, Michael sitting in a chair looking at a window. I don't remember
2: if it goes more into this or not after the fourth movie because I've never seen Halloween 5. I haven't, I've never seen Halloween 6. So, I mean, I don't know really how much more in-depth they go. He's after to kill his sister, but we still don't know what makes him tick. Is he just insane or is he the devil incarnate? We find out that answer more so in the fourth movie, which feels even more like a throwaway and more of a downward spiral when it comes to giving him a character. So I guess yeah. giving John Carpenter in Halloween 2 the benefit of the doubt, at least they kept it a little bit open ended and was just only kind of playing around with the Lori character really.
1: I think they definitely saw a wrapping up point and so they figured, hey, let's let's see this is one story. You know, they definitely saw the Michael Myers sagas, you know, this big thing over two movies not a big thing, but you know, over two movies. And so let's end it and, you know, he burns at the end and that's the end of it.
2: And we must also add that it's not just Michael Myers who burns up and returns in later installments, but also Dr. Loomis (laughs) burns up and returns with this grotesque looking somebody called it a fried egg a permanent fried egg on the side of his face we'll get more to that in a in a little <laughs> bit but that's how halloween 2 ends it ends with laurie dr loomis and a couple other police officers i either all of them or most of them end up dying at the hand of michael myers of course they shoot him they think he's down but he's not and their last resort dr Loomis's last resort is torching him and himself along with him so Halloween 2 ends. Laurie is still alive. There aren't too many casualties, I guess. You think the story for the most part is wrapped up. He's burnt up. You still have the idea that he is just possibly a psychotic human being who is now dead. Story's wrapped up. Dr. Loomis succeeded in what he was trying to do. So his character is wrapped up quite nicely and there you go. Fade to black. Moving on to Halloween 3. Halloween 2, I mean, it wasn't necessarily, like, poorly received. Did well at the box office. Right. But I still don't think critics were very jazzed about it. And a lot of them were the same critics who didn't like the first movie.
1: Right. Well, now, now you have Halloween as kind of being, instead of standing above kind of these lesser kind of schlocky movies, it's kind of standing side by side, and it's a better version of them. But it's still one of those movies.
2: Right. You know, that's actually a very good way of putting it.
1: Or one of those movie series, I mean.
2: I know I brought up Friday the 13th before... The first movie's a classic. There might be a couple Friday the 13th movies that are worth checking out, but the majority of them are not good. They're laughably bad. And it's obvious that, th- that it was like a franchise cash-in. You know, it's cheap to make, and it's also selling toys. So then there's merchandising that comes into play. Mm-hmm. I think around Halloween too, merchandising was in, I don't know if full effect is the right, way, you know, right word to use, but people were definitely dressing up on halloween as michael myers he was definitely a pop culture icon right kids were talking about him it was popping up in late night tv so halloween is a full-blown phenomenon in fact it was a full-blown phenomenon after you know the first movie which makes the idea of halloween 3 season of the witch that much more fascinating
4: You don't really know much about Halloween. Oh, Halloween. The barriers will be down between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red. Halloween,
3: the you
4: You happen to know anything about this, Cochrane.
3: All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season
4: He's watching you, friend, sh- I guarantee you that. Hey, Mr. Cochran. Just what is the final process, fellas? I was just kidding. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Where are they taking her? They're taking her to the factory. I want a mask. Can I
0: have a mask?
4: Uh, Just (laughs) what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Cochran? Why? Do I need a reason?
0: I've got nothing here to indicate there was ever a body at all.
4: Operator, this is an emergency. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. You've got to believe me. They're going to kill us. All of us. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Season of the Witch. The night no one comes home. Season
2: of the Witch. It came out October 22, 1982, on a budget of $2.5 million. The box office intake was $14.4 million bucks. This one, of course, is directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who, again, editor, production designer of Halloween. I know, Harry, this is one of your other favorite Halloween flicks. <laughs> Tell us some about Halloween 3, <laughs> Season of the Witch, which probably should have just been called just Season of the Witch.
1: Basically, this company called Silver Shamrock is um, selling these Halloween masks that are really popular with the kids, and there's a jingle That plays ad nauseum in the movie. Happy Happy Halloween,
4: Halloween, Halloween, Happy Happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Happy Happy Halloween, 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 Happy Happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. Be in front of your TV sets for the horathon. and remember the big giveaway at 9. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time.
1: And telling you how long it is till Halloween, while at the same time, this guy comes into a hospital where the great Tom Atkins is working, he ends up being killed by somebody, and so Tom Atkins goes on this kind of quest to find out, well, who was the killer, and... He also sees the killer blow himself up in the parking lot. So he neglects his family even further and goes to uh, find out the truth of what happened to this guy with his daughter. And they go to this town basically owned by Silver Shamrock to uncover what really happened, only to find very shocking and disturbing events that will be taking place when Halloween comes.
2: That Silver Shamrock jingle is not annoying whatsoever,
1: right? I love it. You know, I'm sure it is annoying to some people, but I'm very, very, very happy to hear it whenever I can.
2: Why did they decide to not continue the Michael Myers storyline?
1: Really what they wanted to do was they wanted to do more of like a Twilight Zone thing where they realized they'd come to the end of the storyline with Michael Myers the logical conclusion to Michael Myers. So they thought, well, we have the name Halloween. Let's do something new and something interesting. Let's use this as kind of like a brand, like a Twilight Zone type thing or like a night gallery. And let's just have a new story centered around Halloween with a lot of the same creative people involved. And every year or every couple of years have a Halloween movie. Because there's no way we can continue the Michael Myers story. And it seemed
2: like this really caught audiences off guard
1: they were pissed
2: yeah no shit <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting about this movie um and why i too like halloween 3 is that it's different and th- that's also why i i have respect for carpenter and deborah hill and yablon because they knew that the Michael Myers story was virtually over. I mean, they knew that if they kept making Michael Myers movies, it was gonna be obvious that it was just gonna be a cash grab. For one thing, Halloween, the first one, was a very basic premise. If you were gonna make a totally different sequel, like, you know, the next Halloween or two Halloweens later, you would have had to have followed the very same structure, which is why the second one was just a continuation. I thought that was pretty cool. Whenever I first watched Halloween 3, I got Invasion of the Body Snatchers vibes, you know, the 1950s Invasion of the mm-hmm. Body Snatchers, where, you know, they're they're in the small town, surrounded by the pod people, you don't know who to trust.
1: Yeah, this is definitely like a a science fiction movie as opposed to like a stalking slasher movie.
2: All the elements to it was just handled so well, I mean, especially down to the casting, which... I thought the casting was pretty good. Like, even the villain. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't really, like, the smartest villain ever put into a movie, but the whole idea is that he was going to use the power of one of the Stonehenge rocks that he stole to...
1: <laughs> to bring back the true meaning of uh, the Salwin sacrifice.
2: It's so bizarre, you know. <laughs> there there aren't really witches in this movie, either.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's more kind of in line with those kind of... Uh... Movies Michael Crichton was making around that time, like Coma and Looker. How so? Just this kind of weird conspiracy of all this technological kind of horror that's going to happen. And the one crazy person who's trying to stop it, who's actually not crazy.
2: I was kind of surprised because whenever I was doing some more research and watching interviews and documentaries and whatnot, when I watched it years ago, I always thought, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that's what came to mind. But I later found out that's what they were going for. Just that idea of, of, that, of right. the one sane character who's in on it, and yet nobody believes him because the truth is just flippin' insane. And aspects of the ending of Season of the Witch mirrors a great deal Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like the love interest. She gets overcome by the robots, you know. (laughs) Very much like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where she becomes, you know, one of the body snatchers. I just, I really like that 1950s element. Those are stories, those are the types of movies that all of these people, especially John Carpenter, were influenced by. And it was just so freaking cool. And I just, I wished John Carpenter directed it, because to me, I, I always attribute, like, they live to being another, like, Body Snatchers movie, like, in the vein of of Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
1: Right, totally.
2: I guess, in a way, John Carpenter did make his Invasion of the Body Snatchers movie. I guess two of them, if you consider The Thing, but then again, there's really no, like, trying to influence the masses that there's this evil presence that's...
1: Oh, there's definitely a lot of that in, like, Prince of Darkness as well.
2: Which, also, Donald Pleasance is in that one as well. (laughs) When did you first watch season of the witch were you were you younger or was it not until when you were older because when i first watched it i really didn't know that it was a sequel to halloween
1: i actually didn't watch it and i you know i was told i kind of avoided you know growing up they were like oh that's not a real halloween movie so i never watched it but i didn't really watch it until a couple of years ago
2: it's kind of like freddy krueger dream child or is it dream warriors the one with the kids in the institution
1: oh that's dream warriors
2: What was cool about that one is that it was just different. You know, it had more of like a fantasy element to it. Kids were still dying in horrible, brutal ways, but there was that fantastical aspect where they were at least trying to do something a little bit different, break the formula a little bit up, which, you know, again, that's something else that I really enjoyed. But from like a a filmmaker's point, or I guess maybe like a producer's point of view, If you were in charge of the Halloween series, would you have taken a gamble with this movie? Would you have thought this would have been a good idea to make a non-Michael Myers Halloween movie?
1: I don't know. I think, again, we're looking in hindsight of like, you know, yes, we've we've had a whole series of Halloween movies with this character that survived. But um, at this time, I don't even think that we've had the Friday the 13th movies we haven't had as many Friday the 13th movies as we've had. I don't even think Jason had his mask at this point. You know, he only, right. it was in the 1982 did this come out in? Yeah, so I think Friday the 13th Part 3 came out in 82, I believe. You know, that's only the second movie with Jason as a returning killer. You know, you have three Friday the 13th movies where the first one's his mother, second one is him with the bag over his head, and the third one he has the hockey mask. So we don't know the value of a returning killer. So they probably thought, well, you know, he's dead, so we can't make another movie with him.
2: But I know the audience really didn't take that into consideration because a lot (laughs) of people, according to the producer, uh, a lot of people left the theater asking where was Michael Myers. (laughs) And despite the movie becoming a cult classic... It wasn't really received well by critics. Kind of surprised Roger Ebert really didn't even give this one a positive review. Even he was kind of caught up in the, the whole idea of why they would have steered away from what made the series what it was. Carpenter did the score for this one. It's very different from the first two and doesn't include the main theme. piano and the synthesized organ melodies uh, that were used for the first two movies it was replaced by this quote slower electronic theme played on a synthesizer with beeping tonalities end quote (music) this movie created more quote false startles end quote than the first two it was gimmicky but it was still an enjoyable movie and, like, I couldn't figure out if they were purposefully trying to make this movie, like, super merchandise by having the Halloween masks. <laughs> Buy these Halloween masks for Halloween! You know, I don't know if that really ever took off because yeah. of, you know, what the movie was. But, like a lot of people, <laughs> which can be attested to the low box office score, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, wasn't even released for another six years. That's six years! without there being another halloween movie seven years without there being another michael myers halloween movie it was released on october 21st 1988 with a budget of five million dollars took in the u.s box office 17.8 million dollars and i don't have the results for its worldwide box office or inflated box office but the movie did well it was number one for two straight weeks people were obviously excited that michael myers had returned it was received Favorably, by some critics. It was kind of a mixed bag, but people enjoyed it. Uh, The whole idea was that they wanted to return to the roots of the first film, where it was Michael Myers versus Lori. Well, they couldn't get Lori because Jamie Lee Curtis retired, hung up her Scream Queen crown after Halloween 2. So they thought, why not have Michael Myers go after her fucking niece? Because, sure, why not? Not her niece, but her (laughs) daughter, which would be his niece.
4: Ten years ago, on the night of October 31st, a small Midwestern town fell victim to an escaped killer. Under the cover of darkness, he carried out the most horrifying mass murder on record. Sixteen people in cold blood. Ever since that night, no one has forgotten his name. And Halloween has never been the same. Michael Myers has come home. He has returned for one more night of unholy terror. Michael!
3: He's here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way.
4: Oh, God. Who's going to be next? Ah! For the return of Michael Myers,
3: maybe nobody knows how to stop him. He wakes up
2: after ten years of being in a coma. After the events of Halloween Two, he wakes up, kills the doctors and the EMTs and the paramedics or whatever who are you know taking care of him while he's being transported. Doctor Loomis hears about this, and you find out he's alive. You know that Doctor Loomis is alive. He has this prosthetic on his face, which he called a uh, piece of fried egg. Which, once he said that, everybody realized that it was going to be way too uh, distracting. The audience is going to find it way too distracting, so they went back and reshot all those shots where you see that fried egg on the side of Doctor Loomis's face. But yet, when they went back to re-edit the movie, the editor, whoever was in charge of that, doing the cuts, accidentally edited in shots of the egg face and not the shots done during the reshoots. <laughs>
3: so it brings you back here
4: after ten years,
3: Michael Myers? Has escaped from Richmond. He's here in Haddonfield.
4: That's impossible.
3: Michael Myers is an invalid. He's here, Sheriff. Why? Ten years ago, he tried to kill Laurie Strode. Now he wants her daughter.
4: Are you talking about Jamie Lloyd?
3: Wherever she is, that little child is in mortal danger.
4: Myers has been locked up since before she was born. He's never laid eyes on her.
3: Six bodies. Sheriff, that's what I've seen between here and Ridgemont. A filling station in flames. I tell you, Michael Myers is here in this town. He's here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way I
4: All right, Pierce, call the troopers and check your story out. And assuming what you say is true...
3: It's true, Sheriff.
4: All right, all right, it is true. What the hell can we do to avoid a repeat of ten years ago?
3: find this little girl get her someplace safe call the local tv station tell them to get people off the streets and behind locked doors so it's
2: really funny because there's that car shot car scene where it's going back and forth and you see him how the makeup was the second time around but then it cuts to the close-up of his face and you see that nasty nasty ulcerated egg on the side of his face, but yet, like Doctor <laughs> Loomis isn't like changed from this at all. He's still determined to find him, but yet he's gone through such a traumatic thing. So, the gist of this movie is basically Doctor Loomis trying to save and trying to keep Laurie's daughter from being killed by Laurie's brother Michael Myers, who's now after her.
1: And I wonder if Donald Pleasance had any blow flashbacks while he was playing this part
2: resort to these crazy maniacal (laughs) blowfield tactics to get rid of michael myers you got to me again michael myers if i met him on set i'd want to ask him like how was this prosthetic compared to your blowfield makeup because uh, (laughs) you know it's a pretty drastic transformation so yeah so what, what do you think of this movie john carpenter did not want to do this in fact he and deborah hill Signed over their rights to the name, the brand Halloween, I guess, to the producer.
1: Right. Yeah, I think it started, they had another writer they were working with, and they were under the assumption that, yeah, if Michael Myers is dead, we can't make another movie, so let's make a Halloween movie that involves the ghost of Michael Myers, or not necessarily the ghost, but like, there's a presence there that's kind of affected Haddonfield. But uh, Mustafa Akkad was like, no, I want Michael Myers. I want the knife. I want the mask. I want the shape. When they kind of realized that that was never going to happen, they just you know went ahead and gave it away. And this is kind of the jumping off point to where there, there there's really no excuses to be made in the quality of it. It you know visually it's not very interesting, and it just it looks like every other slasher movie. There's nothing that aside from the actual look of Michael Myers and the theme song. There's really nothing that differentiates him from Jason at this point, or Leatherface at this point, or any other kind of movie modern movie monster.
2: In fact, this is when Michael Myers starts randomly appearing five steps ahead of the people that he's chasing. This is still <laughs> slow-moving, strolling around Haddonfield, Michael Myers, trying to kill these people. And yeah, these people are running, you know, they're not necessarily confronted by a gate or a fence they have to climb up or a wall they have to try to go through, you know. No, they're running down streets. They're in cars. They're getting away from him in cars. (laughs) And he still shows up. That's the thing. Like, like there's the closer to the end of the movie, (laughs) Dr. Loomis has the, has the little girl and he has her they're going down the street you know they're running away from him i mean they're sprinting again oh here's the school he has a gun so he shoots the lock off the school so there's not really much stalling them there they go into the school and they're in there they have a chance to hide and possibly michael myers did not see them going into the school unless they just ran straight the entire time instead of making any turns you know But then all of a sudden, he's there. He just, like, appears around a corner. It's stuff like that. Like, we know Michael Myers is strong. But I don't think he's really that strong to where he could just bust through... I mean, we've seen him bust through a closet door. But, like, we don't think he can, like, bend bars. You really don't get the sense that he's superhuman. But in a way, I think that is where... This movie, this franchise is now heading towards more of the mythical side because now Donald Pleasant's Dr. Loomis is calling Michael Myers evil incarnate. He is the devil. He is the boogeyman. He is this figure, this mythical evil figure because he has been resurrected, you know, yada, yada, yada. There's really not much supporting that other than Dr. Loomis's exposition because... Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the movie, he doesn't have his mask. So he has to go and get his mask, but he doesn't go and get his old mask. He goes and gets a mask (laughs) that one would buy at a Halloween costume store. You really don't get the idea that his face was, like, that mask was super popular. Maybe it would have benefited if you got the idea that he was some kind of weird... Like, there was some weird, like, infatuation with Michael Myers. Kids or townspeople just, like, really clung on to him because he was a myth. Always heard the stories of him. They just never experienced what others went through. Right. That also raises the question of, well, how do they know what the mask looks like? I don't even think, I don't think Lori or any of the other survivors would have openly (laughs) <laughs> told a designer like this is what the mask looked like and you know what every halloween i want to see civilians strolling around my town wearing that mask that's the type of stuff that really bugged me
1: right i think another uh you know i said there's no excuse to be made there actually is a very real excuse for the decline in quality of this movie after kind of finally getting the movie going The writer, Alan B. McElroy, had 11 days to write and turn in a draft before the writers strike. So this movie was very much rushed into production. And he had to come up with a
2: new
0: concept
2: also, which is crazy.
1: (laughs) Yep. <laughs> By
0: order of the sheriff's office All citizens of Hattonville are asked to clear
4: the I states. made that payment nine days ago And I still have personal bastards Everybody shut up a goddamn minute a Shut up
0: All businesses are asked to close as soon as possible so all that shit Stay about tuned out. to the station for
4: updates Like old Ben Meeker Do something like that Sure ain't Martians could land on Ben's doorstep While he'd do his spit once and get himself a shotgun Who are you calling? Police station Closing down without a good goddamn reason. Well just ran. Well, come on. Jackie, watch the register for me, hon. You got it, Earl. What's going down Where are we going, Earl? We're going to bed phone never just breaks at the police station no way no how wake up the
2: sheriff so what did you think about like the hillbilly guys also because these are other characters that are are in the movie <sighs> this, this group of men there's a moment when loomis finally gets to the the sheriff or the cop or whatever and he's like you know proved finally like something is going on something is happening then the cop is like okay i see this murder i see this shit happening And then he's kind of like, I I believe you. I'm I'm in on it now. I'm in on it now. I'm I'm following you, Dr. Loomis. Even though to any sane person, Dr. Loomis comes across as a freaking mad person. He buys into it. And, you know, for for the sake of a horror movie, okay, I I get it. But you have these hillbilly people. Friday the 13th definitely had their hillbilly folk moments.
1: These are more kind of just drunks at a bar. You know, it's the kind of the idea of the townspeople with pitchforks, except instead of pitchforks, they're hillbillies with guns, you know?
2: Yeah, and they just automatically go after him. I guess like how a normal conservative would Mm -hmm. go about doing so. Michael Myers is back. Oh, let's go after him. Let's kill him. Let's torch him. Let's hang him up and, you know, do all this stuff. To me, it seemed like the film relied heavily on the exposition from Donald Pleasance. But I think probably the one thing that we should get to before we get to our final thoughts here, what about that twist ending? Did you see it coming? <laughs> I guess whenever you first watched this movie.
1: <laughs> I don't know if I uh, saw it coming, but I was definitely hoping it was happening. So I guess I saw it coming. That's one of the redeeming things about the movie to me is that, is that it goes all out with this, you know, batshit insane kind of genetic evil they
2: made Halloween 4 as a result of Halloween 3 because people were so upset that Michael Myers was not in Halloween 3. He was not the main killer. They made Halloween 4. So everybody went to go see Halloween 4. And at the end of the fourth one, you kill off Michael Myers. He transfers his power to his niece to where now she becomes Michael Myers?
4: Sammy! Get away! Stop touching Jamie! Get
2: down! And I always thought that was pretty interesting because we're not going to be discussing Halloween 5 this time around, but in Halloween 5, Michael Myers comes back. But, like, they never thought that oh we're going to replace Michael Myers with her. But I even thought that was kind of a gamble. Why even tease that? Because then you're just going to kind of tick off the people that came and saw your movie because they thought you learned your lesson from you know the one
1: before. Right. And uh but I think what the movie does thematically is it kind of bookends the series now as kind of like okay this it ends where the first one began with the point of view shot of this young girl wearing the similar clown outfit as her uncle and uh, the same kind of reveal so in a sense they could be like okay now this is where it is.
2: lastly do you think that this movie marks the beginning of the halloween franchise grab it's more of the same without the quality filmmaking it's atmospheric i give the movie that i think the look of the movie is just fine which made the movie watchable for sure but then now we're starting to see michael stabbing a woman with a shotgun <laughs> and again, he's now randomly appearing in front of the people he's chasing. You know, he's he's like six or seven feet ahead of him. Do you notice at all, like, kind of the decline in the franchise in the making?
1: Absolutely. Now it's when it, it's kind of the Mark two of the kind of Halloween franchise to kind of go on as strictly like a cash grab.
2: Hell, if Michael Myers was able to find his Halloween mask at the local town uh, yeah. Halloween costume store... I think we all know that by now, the Halloween label is in full swing. Right. What are your final thoughts when it comes to the Halloween series up till now? Is it still better than the Freddy Krueger movies? One through four of Freddy Krueger, or even one through four of Friday the 13th? Do you still think there's potential here, or there are still redeeming qualities to these movies, or at least to the fourth one?
1: Now what you get, or what it starts to feel like, because you have the first Halloween, which knocks open the doors for all of these franchise horror movies to start up, but it takes Halloween a little bit of, like, fits and starts to actually get into that same mode. So it kind of feels almost like a a lesser of those series, whereas, like, Friday the 13th you could see going on and on and on in Nightmare on Elm Street, especially Nightmare on Elm Street, you could see going on for, like, eight iterations but compared to that, I don't know how the sequels stand up to the other sequels of those movies. You know, the original itself is, you know, miles and leaps and bounds beyond any of those franchises.
2: Two more questions for you. What do you think about the lack of gore and blood in these movies?
1: I think there's a little bit more gore in the second one, especially with like the eye stuff and, you know, a person literally slips on blood. I guess that's another reason why, to me anyway, these sequels don't kind of match up to, you know, the Friday the 13th movies just in terms of like, oh my god, I can't believe that that's how Jason killed that person. Or, oh my god, I can't believe Freddy, you know, crushed that person like a bug or something. Well, Freddy also
2: had the quips and The Bitches.
1: (laughs) But I don't think it's worse than those movies. I just think it's kind of a... In terms of what those movies have to offer, it doesn't really have... It, what it has to offer is the simplicity of Michael Myers.
2: I forgot that Halloween 2 does have more of the gore, or not gore, but the slasher moments, because there's that kind of cool shot with the uh, the doctor with the needle in the eye. Yeah. You know, that, that close-up shot. It was pretty cool. So I guess I, visually they play with pretty neat elements like that. More on a psychological therapeutic maybe psycho you know let's let's psychoanalyze the uh, the halloween movies here so when it comes to slasher movies we think of women uh specifically the loose women who are the ones that get killed you know horribly brutally and normally the boyfriends the men sometimes their deaths happen more so off screen where the women you see them get gutted you see them go in a lot of different sorts of ways but what do you think of michael's Knife being a phallic symbol.
1: I think the idea of, uh and especially kind of, you know, it's the cliche of that promiscuous people are being murdered, but I think the knife is more, it's more kind of in tune with like, because in, in the book Shock Value, they talk about how people label, like, oh, it's because these characters have sex. When actually, Annie doesn't have sex when she's murdered, you know, she just spills stuff on her shirt. But she's going to meet somebody, but you know we don't know how well Michael Myers knows about that. So she's just a victim of being there, just because uh, the PJ Soul's character and her boyfriend have sex. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's you know it's not some sort of thing like in the movie Pieces where you know he's a psychosexual killer like in the in Jalo movies where it's heavily, heavily apparent that it's like a psychosexual kind of murder and out of perversion i mean we had the opening scene where he does kill his sister after she has sex but one thing that i remarked watching it is they go upstairs and within 20 seconds he's already putting his shirt back on and running downstairs and out the door so who knows how far they actually got john carpenter
2: his focus wasn't on the sex he wasn't he didn't want to focus on the nudity because it was before the whole slasher Mm -hmm. The slasher and, and boob and sex, you know, underage craze in movies, I guess. Right. Which that's not the technical term for that, the slasher, boob, sex craze movies of the 80s, which is why the first couple Halloweens, the first three Halloweens, I guess, they're mature films, especially the first one. It's a, it's a mature film because he took this movie very much like how Spielberg took Jaws, a B-movie Roger Corman-esque concept. And he made a first run Hollywood summertime blockbuster. Right. You know, or what would become the first summertime blockbuster, you know. And it blew people out of the water. I mean, Roger Corman said that that's when his movies pretty much just died. He had no chance because now Hollywood will make B-movies right that's kind of like what he's doing here john carpenter he took an exploitation film on the ground level it's an exploitation film but he made a real film out of it not saying that exploitation films aren't real but like he used panavision shot in panavision he had the the greatest crew i mean it's just like his vision of it was so much more in line with a bigger budget uh, bigger budget film with a mass appeal And what he brought to the table is what we love about studio Hollywood studio movies and also what we love about like these grindhouse, B or C grade movies, where there's just something like I don't want to say youthful to it, there's just something kind of like fun and entertaining and it's not trying too hard to prove itself. That's what I dig about this franchise.
1: Right. And I also think that because of the simplicity of Michael Myers himself, you can look into that and you can draw your own conclusions. And there's definitely plenty there to Come away with, you know, especially when it's so overt in like other, you know, serial killer movies where they're like, a, where that is the focus, you know, it is the sexuality, it is, you know, using the knife as like a phallic symbol or the chainsaw or the drill or anything as like a phallic symbol. But with Michael Myers, I think it's just the idea that you don't understand. Or the whole point of Michael Myers is that the evil and the intentions are not understandable. They're not to be reasoned, with. he is just killing.
2: And we don't need no backstory.
1: Exactly, no.
2: Just give us a hardened criminal, or a hardened criminal, a hardened murderer, and I'm set. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap this baby up?
1: The one big thing I forgot to mention in the first movie was, uh, and I never paid attention to this before, but like, why are they carving jack-o'-lanterns on Halloween night? that'd be like putting a christmas tree up on christmas day
2: which there are a number of movies that they do that where they put (laughs) it up on christmas eve
1: yeah i I guess it's a thing and i don't mean to like denigrate because these movies are really entertaining (laughs)
0: for part two of three of our Halloween movie series discussion, which will cover Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween H20, 20 20 Years Later, and Halloween Resurrection. We hope you tune in. The music for our show is brought to you by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. Shaving Mirror and Hustle are the song titles used on the program. Our special guest again was Harry J. Perales from the Unauthorized Cinnamon podcast, which you can find over on the Mockingbird Network. Search Unauthorized Cinnamon at www.mockingbirdnetwork.com.
2: Since Errors of Continuity is a podcast presented by the SLS cast, You can find our show over at slscast.com on Twitter at the SLScast. And you can always follow Matt, who of course is not here, over on Twitter at nitwit12345. And me, Tim, on Twitter, if you can find me. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week.